0: when I began to study the Old Testament in its entirety. That class that I took lit an absolute fire under me as I discovered just how beautiful and how rich the Old Testament really is. I was amazed because once I understood it, I truly saw the Bible as a cohesive whole. I saw the seamless connection between the Old and the New Testaments and just how richly the Old Testament really supported the New But what really jumped out to me was just how untrue many of the misconceptions were about the Old Testament. For example, how many of you have heard that the God of the New Testament is a God of love while the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and and wrath? Of course, I knew that couldn't be true even before studying the Old Testament, but it was amazing just how clearly backwards those beliefs came to be once I really understood the Old Testament and its narrative. Now, truthfully, when we talk about God's anger and wrath, the greatest demonstration of God's anger and wrath was not in the Old Testament. It was actually in the New Testament when his son, Jesus Christ, paid the price on the cross. But on the flip side, when studying the Old Testament, I also saw a lot more of God's grace, mercy, and kindness than I did anger and wrath a lot more. Unfortunately, part of the challenge I found was that most Christians, even mature, knowledgeable Christians, are far more comfortable in the New Testament than the Old. This is especially unfortunate because the Old Testament consists nearly of 75% of the entire Bible. But the good news is that the Old Testament is not as difficult to understand once you can wrap your mind around some of its major storylines. Well, if you're someone this morning who has struggled to grasp the Old Testament, I hope to clear some of that fog and bring some clarity to God's overarching plan of redemption as revealed in the Old Testament. So my ambitious plan this morning is to give you a sweeping overview of the story of the Old Testament. Furthermore, I want to give you this sweeping overview while also showing you God's wondrous grace in the Old Testament, all in about an hour. And when we're done, My hope is that you'll find that the real question of the Old Testament isn't why is the God of the Old Testament so angry and wrathful, but rather how could God be so gracious and loving when it was clear that we deserve nothing but anger and wrath? And yes, I do mean we as in all of us, because while the Old Testament focused mostly upon Israel as the people of God, what it teaches applies to all mankind in general. Israel was just an example, but the sins we observe in them are very much in us as well. It's as Paul had said in Romans 3, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now in context, Paul was speaking about both Jew and Gentiles. And I believe that he had the testimony of the entire Old Testament in mind as he wrote that. So my purpose this morning will be to give you a sweeping overview of the Old Testament that reveals God to be a God of grace, mercy, and kindness. And hopefully it'll shine the same kind of light that just came on to this stage. <laughs> now I'm going to divide this Old Testament study into five phases or periods. But because of the scope, I won't stay too long in any one section. You know, I promise there will be future message where we're going to return to some of these major points and we can look at them in more detail. But for now, we'll be looking at a lot of different verses across many Old Testament books. Now, by the way, if you sat through any of the adult Sunday school classes that I happen to teach, you're going to recognize some of these teaching points. But I've never tied them together into one cohesive storyline across the entire Old Testament like I'll do this morning. Now, before I start, I want to give you a conceptual framework of the Old Testament books. Look at your table of contents if you have a Bible. If you have a physical Bible, pull out your table of contents in the beginning of the Bible. If if you're looking at the Bible on a device, then just pull up the list of Old Testament books. And I want you to kind of grasp how the Old Testament is actually organized. I trust that this knowledge will help you better navigate the Old Testament, help you better get a sense of the context of the books that you're looking at. So when we look at the Old Testament, we're looking at 39 books total, 39 books. And you can divide it up this way. The very first 17 books that you see from Genesis all the way down to Esther are historical books. Those are historical books. And you could actually read them in order and you would get the full order of Israel's history. And there's only a couple of exceptions here and I'll mention that in just a moment. But the first five books are what we call the Book of Moses. Sometimes the Jews refer to this as the Torah. This is where we find the law of Moses being defined. This is where we have the history of all of mankind leading up to Moses. And, of course, you're familiar with those storylines. We have the exodus from Egypt. We've got the receiving of the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. And then we have the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, eventually getting to the Promised Land, right on to the verge of the Promised Land. And then following those five books, you've got Joshua. The book of Joshua details the conquest of the promised land. So that's when the Israelites actually went to the promised land to conquer it. And then Judges is really a 400-year period. It describes a 400-year period approximately where the Israelites, now they're in the promised land. They have the law. They're being left to themselves to go ahead and live live it out in the land, which ends up in terrible failure, as you'll see in a moment. And then you've got the book of Ruth. Ruth is really kind of a personal story that happens within this period of judges. And then the next four books: First and Second Samuel, first and second Kings. This is these are the four books that describe the kingdom era. This is the kingdom era. First and second Samuel describe the first two kings, which is David, Saul, and then David. And then first and second Kings gets into Solomon into the divided kingdom when the kingdom is divided out of um, God's judgment upon Israel and then right into the exile in fact the end of second kings they lose out in the promised land and they go into exile and then first and second chronicles really first and second chronicles is looking to summarize all the old testament all the way up until Ezra which is the next uh, book after the first and second chronicles in fact the end of second chronicles ends exactly the same way that Ezra begins which is basically a call for the Jews to come back to the Promised Land. So then, really, Ezra and Nehemiah are the two books that describe um, Israel after the exile, after they've come back to the Promised Land. And then you have Esther. Esther is actually out of order. Esther was written during the exile. Um, So if you're going to put this in order, Esther would, would come before Ezra, really. But that's it. Those are the 17 historical books. And then after that, you've got five kind of poetic writings, You've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then the last 17 books after that. The last 17 books, these are all prophetic books. These are all prophetic books. And actually they were written from the period of the divided kingdom through to the exile and then following the exile when they came back. So they, you have those prophetic books. The first five are major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah. You see Lamentations. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. You have Ezekiel and then Daniel. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are three prophets that were um, prophesying to Israel really during the time that exile was occurring. During the time that exile was occurring. And then the final 12 books are really the minor prophets. We call them minor not because they're less important but because their books are much smaller. Um, so you've got the minor prophets from Hosea to Malachi, and the last three of those minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those are three prophets after they return from exile, after they return from exile. Now, if you don't get all that, don't worry. I plan on writing, actually writing, writing up a summary of that, and uh, we'll get that distributed out to you guys either online or in printed form sometime in the near future. But essentially, we've got 17 historical books followed by five poetic books, followed by 17 prophetic books. That's it. That's how it's organized. Um, so having explained that, let's get going with our Old Testament overview. Again, my purpose this morning will be to give you a sweeping overview of the Old Testament that reveals God to be a God of grace, mercy, and kindness. And as we look to learn about the wondrous grace of God in the Old Testament, we're going to start with our first phase, which is God's grace promised to Noah. God's grace promised to Noah now consider for a moment God's earliest promise of a Messiah the first messianic promise in the entire Bible shows up where It'd be Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that would be during the fall God is pronouncing his judgment but in Genesis 315 and you can turn there we'll, we'll start to kind of go through various verses starting in, in Genesis But in Genesis 3.15, God says, and I will put enmity between you, and he's addressing Eve, between you, I'm sorry, he's addressing the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now the question is, right here, right then, right there, as God is making this promise, why didn't he immediately send his Messiah after? Tuck that question in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. But essentially, the rest of the Old Testament is going to essentially answer that question. Now, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have these these four major storylines. We have Adam and Eve, followed by Cain and Abel, followed by the Great Flood, and then the Tower of Babel. Now, let me ask you this. What's the common problem found in each of those four accounts? What is it? Sin. Sin. In fact, how bad was sin just before the great flood? Look at chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's bad. That's worse than it's ever been in the history of mankind. That is exactly what led to God flooding the world. But following the flood, God gave Noah a very revealing promise. We refer to this as the Noahic Covenant. And the question is, what was that promise? Look at chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11, Noah says this. I'm sorry, God says this to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, don't misunderstand. I hear many who respond with, well, God didn't, he promised not to bring a flood, but he didn't say anything about fire, right? I mean, I I hear that often, and while that's true, that cannot be what God intended for Noah to understand. There are much deeper implications that ultimately relate to God's plan of redemption. Now, think about this for a moment. Why did God have to bring the flood in the first place? We just said it. What is it? It's sin, right? Right. Now, if the flood was expected to resolve the problem of sin, that would mean that there would be no more sin following the flood, right? If that were the case. And if there were no more sin following the flood, if that was God's expectation, why would God even have to make a promise that He will not flood the world again? Right? Because if the problem is solved, He doesn't need to make this promise. So, in other words, there is no purpose to this promise if sin is resolved. But the fact that God makes his promise shows that God knows that sin is still a problem. And the fact that the flood is followed by the Tower of Babel shows that the problem of sin continued despite God's judgment. We see man's desire to make a name for themselves in the Tower of Babel. And what does God do? He confuses their languages and in the process he creates the nations. Now, remember that the promise not to flood the world again was not made to Israel. Israel had not yet existed. The promise was made to all creation, all people. So if God promised not to flood the world in response to sin, what is he going to do instead? His real solution will be to redeem mankind, starting with Abraham. This leads us to the second period of God's grace seen in the Old Testament, The first was God's grace revealed to Noah. The second is God's grace revealed to the patriarchs, to the patriarchs. Patriarchs meaning the the forefathers of the faith. Abraham is often referred to as the father of the Israelites. The nation started with him, with the promise that we call the Abrahamic Covenant. Look at how it starts in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Now, notice that verse one is directed at Abram. But God then refers to the physical descendants of his when he said in verse two, I will make you a great nation. Notice that nation is singular. This is referring to the physical descendants. This, would be, this is referring to the group of people that we would eventually call Israel. But the blessings get extended in verse 3. He not only says, I will bless those who bless you. In verse 3, look, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. But look at this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember the nations that were created in the prior chapter in the Tower of Babel, right? When God confused their languages, he essentially created nations. Remember the confusion that divided the people into different groups? Well, the very first call to Abram ends here in Genesis 12, 3, with the purpose of blessing all the families of the earth. And it gets even more explicit than that. Multiple times, God would tell Abraham and Sarah that nations, plural, would come forth from them. In fact, Abraham's original name was Abram. And at some point, it gets changed to Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to find out why. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, God says this to Abram. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations, plural. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Remember that Abram was told that he'd be a father of a great nation earlier in chapter 12, but his name gets changed to Abraham to reflect many nations. And the implication is that he would have both physical and spiritual descendants. And by the way, this is a point that the Apostle Paul would make rather emphatically, both in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. But then right here in Genesis 17 and verse 6, Sarah is then said that she would become a mother of nations, plural. And the promise The promise is repeated to Abraham in both chapters 18 and 22, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But later, we find that this promise is not for all of Abraham's children. He had more than one child. Look at chapter 26, verse 4. Chapter 26, verse 4, we find here that the Lord is speaking to Isaac. He is speaking to Isaac, and in verse 4, he has this promise for Isaac. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then again, the promise is not to all of Isaac's children, but specifically Jacob. Look at chapter 35, chapter 35, verse 11. In chapter 35, verse 11, now it's the Lord speaking to Jacob and he addresses Jacob In verse 11 we read God also said to him I am God Almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations plural shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. In fact in verse 28 Jacob would then be renamed to Israel and his sons would later be known as the 12 tribes of Israel. So this Abrahamic promise ends up being foundational In how God would demonstrate his grace. It is the platform by which all other major covenants would be based. And it is by this covenant that God calls Israel out of Egypt. Now the deliverance from Egypt when you get to the book of Exodus. um, This reminds me of a question that I had a non-believer friend who would ask me multiple times with regards to God. He would ask, if God is real, why doesn't he just reveal himself? If God is real, why doesn't he just reveal himself? Well, he did reveal himself to Israel. Consider what the Israelites witnessed even in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. The Israelites saw the ten plagues. That's in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. And as they were escaping Egypt, God manifested himself as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. You see that in, chapters, in chapter 13. This was proof that God was leading them out. And when God parted the Red Sea in chapter 14, he proved that even the most powerful army of the most powerful nation in the world could not thwart God's purposes, even though his people were unarmed. But despite these revelations of God, how did the Israelites respond? Well, if you read chapters 15 and 16 in Exodus, they grumbled about food and water. They even wanted to go back to Egypt. They even threatened to kill Moses and return. Look at Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, verses 2 to 4, reads, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. However, while the people failed to trust God, God's grace continued undeterred. And believe it or not, we see the grace of God in the law of Moses, in the Mosaic law. That brings us to the third period of God's revealed grace, which is God's grace seen in the law. God's grace seen in the law. Do you remember the question I asked as to why God didn't immediately send his Savior after making that promise to Eve in the Garden of Eden? Back in Genesis 3.15, we'll take a look at what God tells Israel in chapter, Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 4. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 to 6, we read, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession amongst all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now look at the response of the people in verse 8. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So then in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments come. And after the Ten Commandments come, look at how the people of Israel respond in verses 18 and 19. Chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. All of the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. Now these Ten Commandments were serious. The Lord wanted them to know that. Look at Moses' response in verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. In other words, the Lord had put fear into their hearts. Why? So that they would obey him. From there, Israel went on to confirm the covenant once more, and the Mosaic law gets officially ratified in in chapter 24, uh, verse 3, and then 7 and 8. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Israel much like the rest of mankind, was confident in their own ability. Israel was confident that they could obey God's law, especially with the fear of God put into them at Mount Sinai, right? But how long did that fear last? How long did they remain true to their promise? Exactly 40 days. 40 days. In Exodus chapter 32, we have the incident with the golden calf. Which violates the first two commandments. The first commandment is that you shall have no other God before me. The second one is that you shall not create any idols. Both of them were broken with those first two commandments. Then the Lord destroys, threatens to destroy them, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he do that? Well, because Moses intercedes with prayers to God. And then God relents from his judgment and then graciously reestablishes the covenant. You see that right there in Exodus 32, verses 11 through 18. Now, I want to correct a common misunderstanding about the Mosaic Law, about this Mosaic Covenant. It is absolutely true that the Mosaic Law shows that none of us are perfect. That is true. Jesus would ultimately be the one to fulfill fulfill the Mosaic Law perfectly by living a perfect life. However, when it came to Israel, God did not demand perfection as much as he demanded faithfulness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you were to look in the book of Leviticus, the first seven chapters of Leviticus detailed the sacrifices that were to be brought regularly when they came to worship the Lord. And guess what many of those sacrifices were for? It was to make atonement for sin. In other words, the law already assumed that there would be ongoing sin that they needed to atone for. That required them to bring animal sacrifices. But not only that, they even had once a year. They they had Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. You see that in Leviticus 16. What was that day for? That day was to atone for any remaining unconfessed sin that the Israelites had each year. These were ongoing practices. These were ongoing practices. Um, holidays, these these holy days that they would have to observe. So the law assumed that there'd be ongoing sin, that was built into the law. But what the Lord wanted from Israel was their faithfulness to worship the Lord alone. The golden calf was the first of many sins of idolatry that would absolutely wreck the history of Israel. Idolatry would be an issue that would run all the way through the Old Testament. If you remember my sermon about Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, that was the exact issue that Elijah was addressing. They had been worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, when it came to Israel's faithfulness to God through the law, God also promised them blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, you'll notice right away in verse 1, it begins with a warning against idolatry. Isn't that interesting? But then from verses 3 to 13, God gives blessings for obedience. We're not going to read all these verses here, but in summary, the blessings include the fruit of the ground, which means they'll have crops and cattle. They're going to have the fruit of the womb, which means they'll have plenty of offspring. They'll have safety from their enemies, and they'll have the ongoing presence of God in their midst. Now, that's a big deal. I mean, consider this. When was the last time the government rewarded you for being a good citizen? Right? You don't get rewarded for being a good citizen. You are just promised you're not going to get thrown in jail. But here, God is giving blessings just for obeying the law that he provides. He's saying that you're going to be fruitful. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to have safety. And God will be with you always. But here, the Lord promises the ongoing blessings for obedience. But not only that, he also, he also told them what would happen if they disobeyed. What's going to happen if they disobey? This is what we refer to as the curses for disobedience. Look at verses 14 through 17. Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 17. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, but instead you reject my statutes, And if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will point over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. Wow. Now, that's bad. But it actually gets worse. We're not going to read all the rest of the curses, but they essentially, these curses would increase in stages. But listen to how each stage of these curses begin and see if you spot a pattern. Once again, in verse 14, it starts off with, but if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments. Go look at verse 18. It says, if after all these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And then verse 21, if then you act with hostility against me and you are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. And then verse 23, and if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me. And then in verse 27, yet in spite of this, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Do you see a pattern with all of those statements? All those statements reflect what we would call conditional statements. They have the word if repeated over and over again. So despite ongoing rebellion, that gets worse and worse. Think about these conditional statements. Think about every time that the Lord says, if you continue to do these things. Why does he say that? What is the Lord giving them an opportunity to do at every stage of cursing? He's giving them an opportunity to repent. They have a chance, even if they fail, even if they are cursed by God, they can always repent and they will be blessed once again. But there will eventually be an end to God's patience. Once again, right here in chapter 26, look at verses 27 to 33. Yet in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. Then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols for my soul abhors you. Notice the emphasis upon idols. Verse 31, I will lay waste your cities as well and make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas and I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. And then listen to this. You, however... I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become a waste. Do you realize what verse 33 is saying? That promised land is going to be taken away from them. They're going to be thrown out of the promised land, the promised land that's associated with the Abrahamic covenant. They will not have it anymore. They're going to be exiled. Now, after receiving the full law, the Israelites... Went, went on to the promised land for the first time. And that first time they went to the promised land, did they enter it? No. no. They did not believe God would give it to them. They were so fearful. And the result was 40 years in the wilderness. And all that first generation of, of, of those who were old enough to serve in the army were killed except for Joshua and Caleb because they believed God. And then this second generation was raised up. And they were once again taken to the edge of the promised land. And that's where we have the book of Deuteronomy. That's basically the entire law repeated to them, recited to them. And did you know that even this early in Israel's history, did you know that Moses knew what would happen? He already knew at this point what would happen in the rest of the Old Testament, he knew how it would unfold. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Towards the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. In chapter 28, once again, you've got the blessings of obedience and the curses for disobedience that we earlier read from Leviticus. That's repeated to them in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But then now look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And starting at verse 1. Look at what Moses reveals about their future. Verse 1 starts, So it shall be when all of these things come upon you. Now, let me stop right there. When all of these things come upon you. Think about that word when. He says when as opposed to if. What's the difference between when and if? Moses already knows this is going to happen. Okay, so when all these things come upon you. Now the question is, what are all these things? Well, keep reading in verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. So Moses knows they're going to be both blessed and they're going to be cursed. But we remember that when we read through the curses, there are multiple stages of curses. The question is, how much of the curses would Israel actually experience? Well, if we keep reading, it says this. Let's read, actually, let's reread verse 1 in its entirety. So it shall be then when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Wow. You know what Moses is saying here? You're not only going to disobey, but you're going to continue to disobey. You're going to refuse to repent. You're going to refuse God's invitation for you to repent and be blessed once again. And it's going to reach such epic proportions that the Lord is going to end up throwing you out of the promised land. This is Moses telling this to the second generation. And it's not just Moses. I mean, Moses says this. uh, And then, well, let's let's continue reading. Starting in verse 2, he says this, okay, so so when you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, that's at the end of verse 1, and then verse 2, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then, in verse 3, the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So in other words, they're going to rebel to the point that they're going to be kicked out of the promised land, but they're would be a time in the future that they're going to remember the law they're going to remember why they're being punished and they're going to come back to the Lord and the Lord will bless them but look at verse 6 verse 6 moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live here Moses talks of circumcision but he's not talking about physical circumcision He's talking about spiritual circumcision. This is crucial, and I'm going to come back to it later. But it wasn't only Moses who foresaw Israel's rebellion. The next book to the right is Joshua. Joshua details the conquest of the Promised Land. And we won't go through the details of the conquest, but take a look at the very last chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 14. And many of you will remember these will recognize these verses I'm about to read. A lot of you have these in your home. Uh, we even have these in our home. Joshua chapter 24 verse 14 reads, "Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord." Notice the emphasis upon idolatry again. Verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in verse 16, the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And then when you go down to verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, listen to this. You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, listen to this, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So what are they to do? Verse 23, now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. Now, despite these clear warnings, Despite the people's confidence that they can follow God, they will ultimately rebel. And they will do it repeatedly. Which brings us to the fourth period of God's revealed grace, which is God's grace repeated throughout rebellion. God's grace repeated throughout rebellion. You get to the book of Judges, which is after Joshua. By the time you get to Judges, uh, Joshua has already led them to the promised land where they were expected to live their lives and in so doing remain faithful to the law. But look at what happens in chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 reads, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they would no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. But the Lord, even after punishing them, he doesn't just stand by, he doesn't just turn his back on them. He ends up sending judges out of his compassion for them. Now, when we talk about judges, we're not talking about those that you find in a courtroom. But rather, these are men who were like mini deliverers. They, they would deliver the people of Israel out of, out of the hands of their enemies and, and attempt to bring them back to the Lord. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 reads, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who had plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now, despite God's compassion upon them in sending judges, look at verse 19 to see what would happen once the judge died. Verse 19, but it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So it's no shock that by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, Israel is actually committing the same sins of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. And in chapter 20, they're led to the brink of civil war. Now, the summary of Judges provides a very fitting summary. Look at chapter 21, verse 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. We read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes you know what that verse describes you know what happens when all of us just simply do what is right in our own eyes you've got anarchy you've got no law you've got no order and this is absolutely ironic considering that the lord god had given them the most perfect law ever given And they were granted by God many judges over a 400-year period to deliver them from their enemies and restore them to order time and time again. And how did God respond to Israel's continued failure over that 400-year period? Well, by the time you get to the book of 1 Samuel, this is what the Lord does. He raises up Samuel as a prophet to help reverse the decline of the judges. He chose David as a good king to provide a leader after God's own heart. He gave David the promise of the Davidic covenant that one of his sons would reign in the kingdom forever. And then when you get to 1 Kings, we find that the Lord even blessed David's son Solomon with unprecedented wisdom. In fact, Solomon was so blessed that the early part of his reign was the height of Israel's spiritual and political prosperity. Truly, Solomon's early success probably led the Israelites to believe that the Abrahamic covenant the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenants were all being fulfilled through him. But then what happens? Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11, and this would be the tragic turning point in Israel's history. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, we read, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. By the way, if you ever hear that God is a racist, because he required Jews to marry other Jews, know this, That commandment to the Jews to only marry other Jews, that was not ethnic pride. Rather, it was to protect them from the idolatry of false gods. And that's exactly what happened when Solomon fell. So as a result of Solomon's sin, widespread idolatry is allowed back into the land. The kingdom is actually split into two. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And several hundreds of years of rebellion continues before the Lord finally exiles them completely by the end of the book of second kings so you get to the book of second kings they have continually disobeyed and they have been kicked out of the promised land now remember how the old testament books were divided up i told you you have these 17 historical books followed by five writings and then 17 prophetic books right well, it was during this period of rebellion, it was, it was during this split of the kingdom, after Solomon's sin that led to the split of the kingdom, and into exile, and then returning from exile. This is really the period that every single prophetic book is written. So if a prophetic book sounds a lot like fire and brimstone, consider how long and sustained Israel's disobedience had been. These books were written during those periods of continued rebellion, trying to bring them back into repentance, trying to bring them back into faith with the Lord, and with, filled with many warnings of what would happen if they would not do so. I now draw your attention to two of the major prophets who were in the Promised Land just prior to Israel's exile, starting with Isaiah. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. So you're going to go past the five books, the five writings, past Psalms, past Proverbs. And the first prophetic book should be Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. And listen to this in chapter 1. Listen to what Isaiah says to the people of Israel. Listen to the attitude that you see expressed from the Lord towards them. Verse 2 starts off, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Jump down to verse 10. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. These sacrifices, these feasts and festivals that the Lord was saying I'm sick and tired of them, Those are all these sacrifices and feasts and festivals that were instructed to them through the law. But because of their idolatry, the Lord didn't care about those sacrifices. And in fact, look though at God's gracious opportunity for them to repent starting in verse 16. Look at what he says here. Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And did they repent? No. A few generations later, we have the word of Jeremiah, who would be the last prophet in the promised land. Um, Turn to the next book over to the right, and you'll get to Jeremiah. And turn to chapter 25, Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, Jeremiah would end up being a prophet to them for many, many decades. This statement here is just, we're we're barely past the halfway point in his ministry. But look at what he writes in chapter 25, starting in verse 3. Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 3. And Jeremiah, by the way, was the last prophet in the Promised Land before they were completely exiled. He was the last prophet in the Promised Land before they were completely exiled. Verse 3, he writes, From the 13th year of Josiah, the king of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent you all of his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And you feel the angst from the Lord God just begging them to come back, to repent, to worship the true and living God. And you see the issue over and over again is the worship of false gods. It's not that they were imperfect under the law. That was expected with the sacrifices. But it's that they would go worshiping after false gods. And if you turn two more books over to the right, you're going to get to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet during the exile so they had been exiled and and uh, might be three books to the right but Daniel he's he's in the promised land uh, not the promised land he's in uh, Babylon he's he's in Babylon during the exile and if you turn to Daniel chapter 9 so this is after Jeremiah Lamentations Ezekiel you get to Daniel chapter 9 Daniel is actually reading from Jeremiah in verse 2 Daniel 9, 2, you see that he's actually reading from the words of Jeremiah. But it prompts this confession starting in verse 3. Verse 3, Daniel writes So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. And then go down to verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant to God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. And yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth you realize what daniel is saying here daniel is saying we disobeyed and we got exactly what we deserved you even warned us of the consequences for disobedience and we disobeyed anyway but god's grace is even seen in the exile see did you know that even while they're in exile god would stir up the hearts of a gentile ruler to allow israel back into the land You'll find that at the very end of the book of 2 Chronicles. you find that at the very beginning of the book of Ezra. It's even prophesied in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. But did things get any better after they returned from exile? Well, not according to Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophets of that time, which were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. In fact, Malachi would be the last known prophet After the Israelites had returned to the promised land. And look what Malachi says. Turn to the very last book of the Old Testament. It's the book of Malachi. So right before Matthew. Matthew starts the New Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Looking at verse 6. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father. And a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. That's an amazing condemnation. It's not merely just Israel. It's priests. Priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? You see, the law of sacrifice is going back to the book of Leviticus. It repeats over and over again that the animals that you were to bring for sacrifice were to be blemish-free. They were to be perfect. They were not to be lame. They were not to be blind. They were not to have any major issues with them. But here they were, after they had returned, they were offering up animals that they knew was not even acceptable to their own governor. And if it's not even good for their own governor, who's merely a human authority, what makes them think it'd be good enough for God, right? But this is the clear, just, rebellion that continues with Israel. Yet despite this failure... Despite their rebellion, despite all the punishment that they received, despite the failed opportunity even to start over again when they came back into the promised land and their continued refusal to repent. Despite all this, God's grace continues, which brings us to the fifth and final period of God's revealed grace, which is God's grace revealed in a new covenant. God's grace revealed in a new covenant. At this point, the situation looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? I mean, having seen all of mankind's failures in the Old Testament going all the way back to Adam and Eve, has man done anything to prove that he is good? Is it any wonder that Paul wrote in Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I firmly believe that Paul was summarizing all that the Old Testament had taught us about mankind. But this is exactly why God had to intervene and address the source of the real problem. You see, there are scattered promises throughout the Old Testament of the real work God had to do. Three of them in particular stand out. One of them from Deuteronomy chapter 30, I'll just read this to you, but we read this already, so let me just remind you, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, talking about the time when Israel finally comes back to the Lord, Moses says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, you might want to go back a book to Ezekiel. A few books uh, to Ezekiel, wherever you're at. Go back to Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. 24 to 27, Ezekiel writes this. And this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, do you notice what both these passages address? What part of our being do both these passages address? Addresses our heart. This is where the issue is. Now, one final Old Testament passage, just to solidify this truth. Turn once more to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is worth looking at closely. Jeremiah is a couple of books to the left of Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And by the way, this passage that we're about to read, this is the longest Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament. It is the longest Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament. So it's got to be pretty important, right? Right. Take a look at Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now let me stop right there. He starts with behold. That is a word of surprise. The Lord reveals to Jeremiah that the Lord will make a new covenant. But why a new covenant? How is it different from the old? Well, look at verse 32. Verse 32 says this with regards to this new covenant. It's not like the covenant which I made to their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So when he talks about the covenant that he made with Israel after he delivered them from Egypt, he is talking clearly about the Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses. He's saying this is not like that law. Well, how else is it different? Well, not only was this the law that he established after he brought them out of the land of Egypt, but verse 32 goes on to say, My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Now, if you recognize the implications here. See, one of the ways that the new covenant would be different from the old, one of the things that God talks about is that this old covenant you broke. You know what the implication is? This new covenant cannot be broken. You broke the old covenant, but I'm going to bring a new covenant. This is going to be a better covenant because it's not going to be one that you're going to be able to break. And how is that possible? Look at verses 33 and 34. He says, but this is the covenant, which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin sin I will remember no more. Are you getting this? The key to true change is through a heart. While these passages mostly pertain to Israel, Israel's problems symbolized everyone's problems. Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah all point to the need of a new heart. This is the Holy Spirit's work in regenerating your heart for, for, and, and his ongoing ministry in you for sanctification. You see, God would not only save us from our sins, but he gives us a new heart to help you do what you and I refused to do before salvation. And now going all the way back to God's first promise of a, de- de- of a deliverer from Genesis 3.15, when he spoke to the serpent and said that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. When he said that, here's the reason why God did not immediately send that deliver. Here's the reason why we have all this Old Testament history prior to God sending his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Old Testament here is to show that no matter how much leeway God gives us, no matter how patient he is with us, no matter how much grace he provides, he could reveal himself showing signs and wonders like he did with the ten plagues in Egypt. He could give us his perfect law. He could make known the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. He could rescue his people repeatedly from the consequences of their disobedience, as we see in Judges. He could send faithful men to help turn his people from their sinful ways, just like we saw in 1 Samuel. He could establish a good king to rule, just as he did with David. He could give promise of an eternal king in the Davidic Covenant. He could give David's son, Solomon, unprecedented wisdom, success, and prosperity. And, though, and through continued rebellion, he could send prophet after prophet, calling for repentance over hundreds of years. He could even stir up the hearts of a Gentile ruler to call Israel to return back to the promised land. He could even send his own begotten son to preach to us. But no matter what God does for us, none of us would ever turn to god that is why we needed god to act this is why we absolutely needed god to intervene we can't do this on our own no matter how good we think we are we constantly turn away we needed god's grace we needed god's regenerative work in our hearts we needed god in spite of ourselves And it wasn't just the Son of God and His death on the cross. We needed God's Spirit to give us a new nature. Without God's Spirit, our stories would be no different than Israel's stories in the Old Testament. This is why Jesus promised the Helper, the Holy Spirit, in John chapters 14 through 16. These promises are rooted in God's gracious promises from the Old Testament but there are many important implications here we don't have time to go over all of them but I'm going to leave you with two in particular the first is what I refer to as eternal security you see if man's greatest need is a new heart and God provides that through the work of the Holy Spirit then the believer is protected from ever falling away from God the believer can never lose his or her salvation how so you might ask Well, it's very simple. If you could lose your salvation by your own sin, it would mean that the power of your sin is greater than the power of God in working to give you a new heart and giving you the Holy Spirit. It would mean that we're no different than the Israelites. But the point of the new covenant is that God intervenes supernaturally. God not only has the power to save, but he protects and he sanctifies And instead of spiraling downwards in our sin, we now grow in holiness by the power of the new heart and the spirit that resides within us. But that brings me to the second implication, which is lordship salvation. You see, the whole point of salvation, the whole point of that new heart and the work of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to do what we could not do on our own. You know, in 2 Corinthians thirteen five, Paul exhorts us to examine yourselves, to see if you're truly in the faith. You see, if you are living the same kind of life that you lived prior to salvation, if your life looks no different than the lives of people that are living in the world, you need to examine whether your faith was truly real to begin with whether you truly responded to faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing is not just intellectually believing the facts. It is a conviction in your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that your life now belongs to Him. Your desires now center around Him. And if you're here this morning and either recognize that your life has not reflected the fruit of salvation or if you have never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let me encourage you to do that now. No matter what sins you have committed in your life, there is no sin that, can, that cannot be overcome by God's grace. And if you're feeling that conviction in your lives, be sure to come and either speak to me or one of the deacons here before you leave. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you. And in fact, I didn't warn the deacons I would do this beforehand. But um, all the deacons who are here, can you please stand up for a moment? Deacons, please stand up. If you're here this morning and you need to speak to someone, if you're here this morning you're worried about the state of your spiritual condition, if you're here this morning wanting to respond to the call to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, come talk to me or talk to one of these men who are standing up. They'll talk to you, they'll pray with you, and they will encourage you. But don't do it before you leave. Thank you, deacons. You can be seated. Now, for all of us, as we have witnessed in, as we as witnessed, as we we have witnessed the grace of God, seen throughout God's redemptive history, let me close with this great quote from Jerry Bridges. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of, of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need for God's grace. Let me read that one more time. It's a great quote. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Let me go ahead and close in prayer.